Good morning. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. That's going to be our text today. When you study the Bible, you learn about God's nature, who he is, how he thinks, what he values. From Old Testament to New Testament, the Bible tells us that God loves to feel what's empty. And I want to illustrate that by just sharing you a story. It's kind of a small, um, you might say insignificant story. It may be to us, but not to the people to whom this happened. Second Kings chapter 4, it's from the life of Elisha. Uh, follow along with me. It's going to be on the screen. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in, your, in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, <clears throat> and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. <clears throat> so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And she poured, and, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on the rest. We learned something from this story and so many others like it, that God loves to fill that which is empty. But what happens when there's no room? What happens when your cup is already full? What happens when your life is already full? For God to fill, I put this on the screen, we must be empty. You know, sometimes you find yourself empty, your jar is empty, but it's not your choice. Life just drains you circumstances. It wasn't what you chose, but it happened to you. You're just all poured out upside down and there's nothing left. If that's you this morning, I want to say I'm glad you're here because God loves to fill that which is empty. And there also may be some who are here today and your jar is full. Maybe you don't even want to be here. You got things to do. You're busy. Your life is full. Your calendar is full. Everything in your life is full. And God would say to you, well, there's no room for me to fill you because you're already full. Today, I want us to look at a passage and study it and discover there's a difference between being full and being fulfilled. God loves to fill what is empty. In this series that we've been studying the last three weeks, we've seen first that we need to acknowledge our brokenness. Psalm 51 the psalmist says there that the sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit, that you admit that you are broken. And when you do that, you invite God's power to work in your life, to mend, to make you whole. We give him the pieces, and he makes us whole. We studied Luke chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee. He's full of religion. He's full of rituals. He's full, in short, he's full of himself. That's who Simon is in the story. And here's the irony. Until he empties himself of this religion, he can't be filled with Jesus. And meanwhile, in his house, here comes this prostitute, this woman who's a broken mess. She falls at his feet. Her tears fall and, and wet Jesus' feet. She dries them with her hair. And you remember the detail about the perfume? How she didn't just open it. She emptied the bottle. She poured it all out. She empties it all. 
but she leaves full. Last week, we talked about the need to humble ourselves. Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, we usually think of just being humble, that humility is just something that happens to us. But as we studied, it's not something that we're passive. It's something that we're active. We make the choice. We humble ourselves. Big difference. I've titled these lessons, Seeing Jesus' Way, because we see over and over again in the Gospels how he had to undo the wrong thinking. People had a way of seeing God that was not true. And so he taught us the right way to see. He told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee came to worship full full of himself, full of his accomplishments, full of how right he thought he was. And meanwhile, the tax collector comes to worship, and he's so empty, and he knows it. And as the story is told, he stands at a distance, afar off. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the Pharisee comes full, and there's no room for God. This tax collector comes empty, and he asks, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he's the one who went home saved. The Gospels are full of stories about Jesus teaching us how to see, how to see correctly, the right way. And he was all about feeling what was empty. You see this in John 6, when those who were hungry, 5,000 of them, and Jesus said, let's fill them all. And they do. You see it in the woman at the well, Jesus fills her soul. You see it in the house of Jairus, Jairus' daughter is dead. And Jesus brings her back to life. The text tells us the house was full of joy. The woman caught in the act of adultery, completely empty. Her life is over, death sentence, and she knows it. Jesus fills her with hope, saves her life, saves her soul. And what about the very first miracle that Jesus performed? Do you remember where he turned water to wine? He goes to that wedding. The wedding, I know, the host planned well enough, or at least they thought they had, but they ran out of wine. Jesus says, bring me six jars of water. He takes the water, turns it to wine. And then the story unfolds. You remember, that was the better wine. And everybody's thinking, wait, wait, we've got this backwards. But that wedding host, I'm sure they were panicky. What do you do? You've got all these guests. You're supposed to be in charge. You're supposed to provide. And you're running out. But every last jar had to be empty before Jesus filled them with wine. We're going to conclude the series today by looking at a lesser-known parable in Luke 14. It's called the Great Banquet, because Jesus uses those words to describe it. Again, Jesus is eating at the home of one of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Pharisees, and Luke tells us a little detail that's worth noting, that they were watching Jesus carefully. Now, when he says that, then you know something's going to happen, right? They're watching him, so you know, okay, what's going to happen next? It happened on the Sabbath. Jesus noticed this man with dropsy. He knows it's the Sabbath. Jesus knows it's the day of rest. Jesus knows the law. I mean, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus wrote the law. So he knows the setting. He knows what day it is. He knows what everybody's thinking. So he asked the question of the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? No answer. That's how chapter 14 opens. That's the background to this. They don't want to say they would not answer So Luke 14 opens with him going to the house. It's the Sabbath. Jesus heals the man there. Now, again, according to the Pharisees, and you know the story, you know their background, they thought that would be a work. You can't do work on the Sabbath, so Jesus broke the Sabbath. 
Because in their legalistic minds, that was the way it worked. So when, when Luke says the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely, I want you to make sure we understand what that means. They weren't looking for information that they were lacking. They weren't trying to discover God. They weren't interested in, in understanding that Jesus was the Son of God. They weren't empty looking to be filled. They had the right answers. They were full of themselves, we might say. They were coming not to be filled by Jesus. They were coming with a critical eye. They wanted to find fault with him. And I was thinking through this. I couldn't help but think the same thing happens today with me and with you when we come to worship. Maybe not all of us all the time, but I think it does happen. There are some people who come to church with an empty jar. They're ready to worship. They're ready to be full of God. They know they need him. And sometimes that can be you and that can be me. But there are other people who come in and they're kind of cynical. And they're kind of critical of what people wear, the way things go, how things are done. And they're not looking to receive anything. They don't come with expectation. And so you've got this kind of dynamic of different people coming to the table with different reason. And so in this setting, Jesus tells this parable known as the great banquet. Now here's something else to consider. Food, table, eating together is a very common theme in Scripture. So whenever you think about God talking about a banquet table or people eating, or even in this parable, the king has this big banquet, there's a metaphor going on there. And it's simply this. It's the place where God addresses the deepest needs of people. He's not talking about food. It's much more than that. In this setting, you'll see this in some of the parables. You'll see this uh, in the Passover meal. You'll see this the Last Supper. You see it over and over a scripture. Banquets are places where God meets the deep needs of his people. Well, let's look at the text. It's going to be on the screen, but you might want to read it out of your own Bibles as well. Luke 14, beginning of verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the same time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything now is ready. And they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now you may be familiar with this parable. I, I imagine you are, but... I want us to fill in the blanks of the characters and sort of who they represent or what they represent. So first is the king. We know the king represents God. Come for everything is now ready. He invites all these people, these invited guests to the banquet table where their needs can be met, where they could be filled. And he sends out the servant to invite the people. I didn't put this as a blank on your outline, but you might want to write it out to the side. That servant is Jesus. So in some ways, it's a whole different character in the story. And in another way, it's one and the same because Jesus and God are working in concert here. He's the servant. He's carrying out the will of God. He's sending out the message there. 
She met right out beside there. The servant equals Jesus. Now, here's how we know this. If you didn't deduce it just from Luke's parable, Matthew tells a very similar parable. But in that parable, do you remember? They kill the servant. So that helps us to put the picture together here. The servant equals Jesus here. So in this parable, he invites the people, but they're not eager to go. Verse 18, they start giving these excuses. They're very polite about it. They want to come. They're not trying to be mean or rude, but something came up, we might say. I've got something else that's happening. So here are the excuses given. The first guy, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Think of this as representing personal gain. I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I would think maybe the best parallel in our day, our time, would be when you buy a house. You know, when you live in an apartment or a dorm or with your mom and dad or whatever situation before you buy your house, you know, maintenance is a part of that, right? So all of that is kind of a part of that. But when you buy your own house, you've got to mow your own grass, right? I mean, you've got to do all the maintenance. You've got to clean the gutters. You've got to rake the leaves. You've got to paint the rooms. You've got to fix the faucet. It is all on you. And the house, and you know this, will keep you busy for a while. If you don't have anything to do, move to another house. You've been there. You know, build a house. It just takes over your life because there's so many details to that. The calendar is quite full. Can't quite make it to your banquet. I've mentioned this before, and you know how true it is, the creativity, even the genius behind commercials. And you notice that all of advertising has this theory, this approach, this, um, if we could use the word presumption of emptiness, like you don't have it and you need it. Like you didn't know you were hungry until you saw that pizza on the screen. You know, that, that presumption of emptiness. And it's everywhere. If you could drive this car, go on this vacation, wear these clothes, this kind of relationship, eat this kind of food, on and on and on again, drink this beverage, you just watch them pour it into the glass, and all of a sudden, you're just kind of thirsty, you know? It's that presumption of emptiness. You need it. And it works because we live in a consumer culture. Now, a basic definition of consumerism is the idea that our success, our happiness, depends directly on our ever-increasing consumption of goods. I don't feel happy, so I need to consume a little bit more. I, need, I don't feel successful because I haven't consumed as much maybe as somebody else or everybody else. So we play the comparison game that who we are and what we do is valued on our consumption, is that not the reason, or at least a main reason, why we overspend or overeat? Why we have more clothes than closet? And this is how many of us deal with emptiness in our Western culture. We deal with our emptiness by living in this constant state of consumption. We can even just get online now and buy things. We used to talk about shopping and throw women under the bus. May I just go on record saying men can be just as bad, if not worse, at shopping and shopping and shopping? Now, it may not be the same thing the women's buy, but we can spend the money. We can fight this just as well. We love to think about what we don't have and what we're going to get. And I was thinking about this as Christmas is coming. It's all a part of that constant state of consumption. But here's what I want us to make sure we get as we study this text. There is a difference between being filled and being fulfilled. Like you keep stuffing yourself. 
and stuffing yourself. You've done that. We do it at Thanksgiving. You eat a big meal at noon, you know, in the middle of the day. And we think, I can't eat another. I'm not going to eat the rest of the day. Right? We say that. And then a couple of hours later, we go back in the kitchen. I just need a little snack. Don't we? And we just said, I've eaten enough for three days. But that's just, we're not hungry. We're really not hungry. We just want to consume. We just want to eat a little bit more. We're constantly consuming, but we never get filled. Mother Teresa said this, the spiritual poverty of the Western world is much greater than the physical poverty of our people in Calcutta. You in the West have millions of people who suffer such terrible loneliness and emptiness. I think she got that right. If I just had a little bit more, one more bite, one more taste, I wouldn't feel empty. Well, the second one gives this excuse. I bought five oxen, and I must go examine them. So if you fill in the blank, you might put in work. You might put in responsibility. But put out in big letters on the side, busyness. Because that's really what we're talking about here. It could be work, and it could be responsibility. But the issue at hand here is busyness. It's not that this person doesn't want to go to the banquet. It's not that she cannot go. There's just, there's just too much going on at work right now. And it's so busy. And, you know, business is expanding. I've just bought more. I've got to go check it out. That's what we're talking about here. I bought these five yoke of oxen. I've got to go examine them. Work, 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 you know. I just don't have any time off. That's what he's talking about here. It's just a busy season. Calendar's full. I wish I could come to your banquet. Really, that would be so much fun. Get away and enjoy a good meal with family and friends. I just can't. That's the excuse here. In June of 2012, there was an article in the New York Times called The Busy Trap. Here's what the article said. If you live in the 21st century, you've probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. The the default response to how are you is busy. How you doing? Busy. How you doing? So busy. How you doing? It's crazy busy. Listen to this. Busyness serves as a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy and you're so completely booked and if you're in demand every hour of the day. We're so busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety because we're addicted to busyness and we dread that we might have to face what we might have to face in its absence. Busyness is a hedge against emptiness. Think about that. Because busyness in our culture is an epidemic. We're afraid to slow down. We don't want to slow down because if we slow down and think, what are we going to think about? What are we going to have to face? What are we going to have to deal with? So we just keep ourselves crazy busy. And everybody else is doing it and talking about it. It's the norm. Be busy, busy, busy. As if that's a good thing. As if that's a meaningful thing. And think about this. Our consumer-based culture, we're moved from just buying stuff and putting it in our closets. Now we want to buy entertainment and adventure. Have you noticed the shift? Heard it on the news this week. Preferred gift is not something you wrap. It's an experience. A trip. A concert, an event, something to remember, something to do. So it's not an object that you can wrap. It's a, this event, this kind of uh, a theme park even, you might say. So this consuming, 
It's not just goods that we hold. It's an experience. Or what about this one? We're addicted to consuming information. We're news junkies. We can't get enough. We complain about it, and then we watch it all the time. Social media, we complain about it, and then we're on it all the time. We do it. We're just consuming all this information. But again, I'm not telling you anything new. You've heard it. You've said it. You know how true this is. IDC research found that 80% of smartphone users check their phones within the first 15 minutes of waking up. Guilty. Who's going to join me and confess and raise your hands if you check your phone? You see what's happening? Yeah, it's true. Here's another interesting fact. I won't make you raise your hand on this one. 75% of smartphone users use their smartphones in the bathroom. And they're not talking. The New York Times called it, I love this, the rise of the toilet texter. The article cited research said 25% of Americans said they wouldn't go to the bathroom without their smartphones. That could get you in trouble if it's charging, you know. It's like, what do you do? We're busy. We constantly consumed. Maybe the New York Times got this one right. Busyness is a hedge against emptiness. Here's a third person. Gives this excuse. I married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Thanks for the invitation, but I got married. Sounds so good. Sounds so wholesome. You might even say biblical. But think of what he's saying here. I'm dining at a table for two. They're serving romance. They're serving weighty cake. And that's what I want to eat. I think I'm going to find what I need for my emptiness at this table. That's what I really want. I think as Americans, we may never fully understand or appreciate arranged marriages. I know when I was young, that didn't enter in at all. As a father of two daughters, I gave it some thought. (laughs) But think about how much we idolize, fantasize, romanticize marriage. It's true. It's not all bad, but later in this chapter, Luke records Jesus saying saying something very strong. He must come even above family. Strong words. Last year, you might remember, Barry England shared with our congregation some lessons on marriage, and we followed that with some lessons on being single. And the reason we did that is because even as Christians, we can have more of a cultural way of looking at it than a biblical way. That if you're single, that doesn't mean you're broken. If you're single, that doesn't mean you're not right, that there's something wrong with you. You can serve God maybe even in a better way as someone who is not married. But as Christians, we need to yield to God's perspective more than our culture. Now, the Bible does teach us to honor our family, honor mother and father as the command of Scripture. The Bible teaches the husband to love Christ, love like Christ loved the church. Mothers and fathers are to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We know all of that. We also know sometimes we can put family ahead of God. We know others who do the same thing. We don't say it like that, but it's true. It might be me. It might be you. That's the essence of what this third man was using as an excuse. So Jesus gives these three people who give these three different excuses. The invitation is sent out. The warning comes, hey, it's time. And they all say, oh, oh, thanks, but, but no thanks. I can't make it. My cup is full. My jar is full. 
full of work, full of shopping, full of eating, full of relationships, full of religion. I'm full right now, so no thank you is the message. Very quickly, I want you to also see an important use of the word full, being filled. We don't have time to go through all of these, but the book of Acts is full, if I can use that word, of the phrase being filled with the Spirit. If you just go and read through the book of Acts, you see it over and over again, you'll see that phrase. And it's not just for the people in the book of Acts, not just for somebody who's been a, a child of God for 10 or 20 years. That's for anybody who is a Christian. You have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible tells us here. I want to call your attention to just one verse. And note the wording here that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. A very interesting way of expressing this idea of being filled with the Spirit. And notice the contrast. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. See the contrast there. Don't be filled with alcohol. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you come to Jesus, but you're already full of alcohol, well, there's no room for him. Do you see the message there? That's what he's saying. You've got a choice to make. It's not a both and. It's an either or. There's not going to be much room for God if alcohol is your first. That's what he's saying. You made your choice. So you empty out of that, then you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. But think about it. And why would Paul use, of all the things he could use, talk about this one? Because alcohol will comfort me. Alcohol will make me feel better. Alcohol will give me courage. Alcohol will help me sleep at night. Alcohol will give me peace. See, if you're abusing alcohol like that, you are doing with alcohol what God wants to do for you. So instead of abusing wine like he talks about here, you be full of the Spirit. God cannot fill you if you are already full. So as we read through this parable, don't be like a Pharisee and say, well, at least I don't have their problem. And don't even hear this one and say, well, I don't even drink, so that's not me. This verse is not about alcohol. It's about anything that you are so full of that you leave no room for God. Here's something I want you to see in this challenging statement, though. It says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is one of those times where there's a benefit to going a little deeper and studying the context and the grammar, like actually the Greek word. So let me share this with you. It's in the present passive imperative form. That's enough to make you want to just learn English grammar and not Greek grammar. But let me tell you what that means. Imperative, you know what that means. It's not an option. It's a command. This is not something that when, when you get to the right stage, this is going to happen. No. If you're a child of God, this is for you. If you are a Christian, you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it's saying. It's an imperative. It's also in the present tense, meaning this is not a one-time thing. Like, like, well, like once you're baptized and you get the Holy Spirit then, and, and then it just sticks. This is an ongoing filling. That's what the grammar means there. It's an ongoing process of being filled up. He continually fills you up. And then the passive tense. Because again, it's not something you do yourself. It's done to you. But what do you do so that this can be done to you? It's the whole message of the parable. You empty yourself. 
I put this on the screen. It's on your outline as well. God, empty me of me so that I can be filled with you. It's when you go to God in prayer, when it's just you and God or in a worship setting, if, some, if you're teaching, if the word is open, your, your hands are open, your heart is open, your mind is open, you are seeking to be filled of God. You realize, God, I am empty. All this stuff that I eat and drink and consume and busy myself with. I'm tired of mowing the grass. I'm tired of food. I'm tired of all of that. God, I need you. That's what we're talking about here. Listen to the way the great preacher D.L. Moody worded it. I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of selfishness, ambition, and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will come and fill every corner of our hearts. But if we're full of pride and conceit, ambition and self-seeking and the pleasures of the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. I also believe that many a man is praying to God to fill him when he's already full of something else. So before we pray that God will fill us, I believe we ought to pray that he would empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. And when the heart is turned upside down and everything that is contrary to God is turned out, then the Spirit will come. God emptied me of me so that I can be filled with you. This man prepares a great banquet, this king, and the excuses start to come in. He sends the servant out, but they're not coming because their cup is already full. So Jesus said, okay, well, go find other people who aren't so full of themselves. And he does just that. But did you notice, he says, compel the people to come that my house may be, and there's that word again, filled. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to be his. God wants to give you his spirit. But it's the truth of scripture. It's all your choice. And again, remember the setting of this parable. He's sitting at the table of the ruler of the Pharisee. These people who are already full of their own hypocrisy, self-importance, accomplishments, righteousness, full of themselves. Sick man shows up with dropsy and Jesus sees somebody who is empty and he fills him. That's seeing the way Jesus sees God emptied me of me so that I can be filled with you. That's our invitation, and that's going to be our song. There's a line in this song, just as I am, I come broken, I come empty to be filled. If you are in need of salvation, we always have the water ready. We're always eager to help you with that and rejoice as you confess that Jesus is Lord and he died for you. If we can help you with your baptism or just... Your situation, maybe for you, you realize you've been full of something other than God. And if we can be your spiritual family and encourage you, won't you come as we stand and sing?